good to see you guys. Great to be with you, family. Uh, good to just gather with you. Missed you. Uh, Burden kids, you guys are making your way out. You can uh, head out back to the classrooms. If you're new visiting, just want to say uh, super glad that you're here with us to, uh, Lord willing, uh, learn more about Jesus, who is the uh, prominent, preeminent Savior that we worship and serve and give our lives to and for, because uh, not only does he demand it, but he uh, gives us fullness of life in himself as we enjoy him. Uh, so that's been great. I also want to say, I know I always say uh, you can grab a Bible if you're new or don't have a Bible, um, but praise God you're taking the Bible. So um, we're almost out, so we need to uh, make a new order, so thanks for your patience with that. Um, but we're thrilled that you're keeping those, reading those, and uh, Lord willing, God is revealing himself through uh, one of those primary ways that he does, which is through his written word, which he has given to us. So um, if you're also new to Christianity, new to the gathering um, that we see as the local church, the people that God saves, loves, adores, adopts, and uh, we gather to worship his name in fullness and joy. Um, we really do that a number of ways. And maybe you're wondering why we do these ways. We, we sing these songs like we've been doing because uh, these songs talk about this Jesus and what he's done and who he is for us. And so that gives us great joy to do that. We worship Jesus by sitting under the preached word, which we're about to do, where we hopefully and Lord willingly learn more about this Jesus Christ who's the center of the entire scripture. So um, I always say if you're wondering what is the answer to the Bible, it's Jesus. So uh, that'll help you in Christianity 101 if you're new to this, wondering what does the Bible say for us? It's a grand story of redemption and God saving sinners who were belittling God God's name in glad opposition to him, deserving of wrath, and God said, I'm going to save them and have my son slaughtered for them, and his blood alone uh, that is spilled for you, and his body alone that is broken for you with his resurrected life alone will reconcile you back to God the Father who dwells in infinite perfection. So uh, it's wonderful that we get to enjoy hearing about them in the scriptures, regardless of what book we're in. That's why we like to teach through books of the Bible as a primary diet. We do do uh, topical things sparingly, which is great, okay, but we like to kind of look at a book, look at what God God says through it so he might reveal more of himself to us. So um, we worship Jesus by the preaching. We also worship Jesus by observing the Lord's Supper each week um, because we remember and are nourished by the saving benefits of his broken body and shed blood as his people. It gives us great joy for that. We also worship Jesus by giving. Uh, if you are a member or a regular attender, we give in the small silver boxes in the back wall. Uh, if you're not, if you're visiting new, uh, we don't want your cash. We want you to know Jesus and know his story of redemption for you that is found on the cross. So we pray that that's what you hear and receive today. Before we get rolling, why don't we ask God for illumination? I'm going to keep doing this because we have to have it. Um, without the Holy Spirit of God helping us to understand and discern things that we cannot discern and understand in our uh, fallen minds that are imperfect and bent towards hostility, we will not get anything from this morning. So uh, no good sermon, no good singing, no um, good gathering is going to do anything if the Holy Spirit doesn't fall and do something. So uh, you're going to see that in the scriptures too. I'm not making that up. So uh, we have to appeal to God to help us and ask him to ignite in us what we can't ignite. So we're gonna gather kindling together, right, as we gather, and we're gonna pray that God lights it. So let's do that. God, thank you that you're a God that um, not only sa saves your people, but indwells your people. And God, thank you that as you indwell us, you give us wisdom, you give us clarity, you give us understanding, you give us enlightenment, you give us illumination. Uh, God, thank you that we come into this room, some of us, Lord, not seeing or thinking clearly, God, we need the word of God to redirect our thinking to you. The God that Solomon would say lives over the sun. So Father, would you help us this morning get over the sun to see you, to see your truth. Thank you for wisdom that's from you. Father, thank you that we can gather and learn and know things because you've decided to let us. 
God, we pray for those this morning who do not know you, do not love you, that God, you would do a warm work in their heart, that you might grant them salvation, they might find rest in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray you'd help us this morning the ways we need help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, We're going to hit the home stretch. We're going to finish chapter 10 in Ecclesiastes. If you're new, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the wisdom portion of your Bible. There's a lot of different portions of the Bible with one grand story. We talked about this a a while back. But um, Ecclesiastes, if you want to boil it down, if you're new, if you have no clue what it is, here's what it is. Be careful what you chase, okay? If you solely spend your life exhausting yourself chasing everything but the God who made you and who you're heading towards who lives over the sun, if you solely view life under the sun with thinking meaning can be found only here. It's going to be a meaningless, futile, vain-filled life. And so he says, don't let your chasing be New York City achievements and world trade and your bank account and your fame and your worldly wisdom and your relationships alone. Let what you chase be Jesus Christ, who is the S-O-N son that came from over the sun, from God the Father, and dwelled among men and lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death for us that we deserve deserved and was demanded of God and as our substitute in our place rose giving us newness of life. So now meaning under the sun is profound. And so um, he's going to argue this from chapter one showing us that hey he's going to ask you a series of questions philosophical um, intellectual questions to get you thinking. I've told you repeatedly if you miss his method then you'll miss his message entirely. So he's asking you questions to get you to think biblically and rightly of the God who made us, loves us, sustains us and will ultimately assess us right? And so here we've been reading about um, these words from one of the wisest men who ever lived, second to Jesus Christ, Solomon, and uh, he's kind of hitting the home stretch here, especially chapters 11 and 12, which we'll get to in the following weeks. Uh, we'll wrap this up in September um, and finish this book of Ecclesiastes. And here's, here's what he's doing. He's continuing to make a bunch of basically uh, proverb-like statements. He's still in this uh, getting really practical for you, getting involved in wisdom, the day-to-day uh, walking of life, and he's communicating truth that is brief it's memorable but it's insightful um so remember, um, we, we said two weeks ago, um, wisdom in the scriptures is never positive thinking alone. It's right thinking. Um, you have to get that. Wisdom uh, is not what you'll go find in Barnes & Noble from the scriptures or Dr. Phil or Oprah. We're talking about right thinking, correct thinking, not just mustering up the will or the inner self, but actually applying what God has said as to walk rightly in the most full life that he offers us in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at wisdom, it always has to be rooted in Jesus Christ and his work. It always has to be founded in that great gospel, which is good news. Now, here's the thing. Um, The Bible is a story about God rescuing sinners and saving them for himself and his pleasure, but um, it's also the big idea is basically there's good news. But but here's the deal. As you see good news, the Bible gives good wisdom for God's people, okay? And so uh, what he's doing here is he's giving us good wisdom for God's people. Now, um, much of the scriptures is basically uh, sin and righteousness, unholy versus what is holy. Uh, Here it's basically what is wise versus what is foolish. And he's kind of uh, closing the gap on his proverbial statements. A lot of it's like Proverbs as you read these portions of Ecclesiastes which you'll see. Uh, But what he wants you to know is he wants you to see you don't just want to have a full life in eternity which we will have if we are his. He wants you to have a full life now. He wants you to know more of his glory now. More of his splendor now. More of his majesty now. And so here's what Solomon writes in his wisdom portion where we've said he's a bit schizophrenic. He seems like he's getting old. He just throws out all these statements uh, sporadically. Seems like he leaves and comes back and he tells us these, basically these snidbits of 
wisdom. And here's what he writes in verse eight. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to charmer. Okay, so uh, Solomon just lays out everyday circumstances that would happen in the unpredictability of life. He's been talking about this for the last eight chapters, how you don't plan tomorrow, you don't know what tomorrow holds. The best of your knowledge is the sun might come up, that's about it, so we don't know when we will die, we don't know when God will graciously take us from this life, but we do know that there are events that happen, things that we do, we don't know when those events will occur. So he goes, there's a guy who digs ditches, and one day, he's been digging his whole life, he falls in a ditch and dies. There's somebody who is breaking through walls and he breaks through a wall one day and then a serpent is actually in the wall. It bites him and kills him. He's talking about the vanity of life if you don't understand the God who designs life and is in control of life. So the wise person takes his days as a day and he walks wisely in them. He knows he's not owed 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 90 years. He knows he's not owed the day that God gives him, yet today is the day that we have. The scriptures will say, so rejoice in the Lord and be glad in it. And so as Solomon looks at this unpredictability of life, he says there's a wise way to do things and a foolish way to do things, which is why he says, make sure your ax is sharp. Make sure you sharpen your blade. The wise person prepares, right? Now, um, if you're a lumberjack, and I know there's so many lumberjacks in North Jersey, I mean, we're filled with them, but if you're a lumberjack, right, you're gonna go out and just start wailing on trees, you're gonna make sure your blade is sharp, right? Because if not, if your blade's not sharp, you're gonna go out and make a mess of it. And you're gonna spend more time trying to cut down the trees than you would if your blade was sharp to be efficient. Seeing the wise person is a person that just prepares and knows where he's going. He knows what God has asked of him. Do you know these things? Now, let me help you. Um, Most of us think we need to go looking for it. Um, And we search the scriptures. What what does his will for Mike read? Well, he said his will for the people of God. He's given his will in the scriptures repeatedly, but he's also placed us in places that reveal you're already where he has you. So listen, you don't need to go, if you're married, you don't need to go look for the spouse he's asked you to lead in love. Like that's right before you in your home sitting next to you today. You don't need to look for the children he's asked you to raise and steward for his glory. If you have children, those are the ones that you have. You don't have to go look for the job that he wants you to work out with all your might and be an ambassador of reconciliation and he's put you in the job that you're in tomorrow morning when you wake up and head to it. Uh, You don't need to look at what neighbors does he want me to reach? What street does he want me to really evangelize? You're living on the street with the address you have to evangelize and love those neighbors. So instead of going looking everywhere else for God's will, he's saying, hey, look, uh, be prepared where God has placed you. Keep your ax sharp. Don't let it become a dull blade. There's something else Solomon is getting at underneath this, and it's you're not going to bear fruit in any of those things overnight. It takes time to sharpen your ax, right? Because you know the fruit it will bear when you work, when you labor. The fool says... I don't want to take time to sharpen the ax. I don't care if my blade's dull. I'll just go take life as it comes, right? I'll just take circumstances as they come. I don't want to prepare. I don't really care what God has asked of me. I'll just vainly walk around mindlessly in an elevator. And that's not what 
he's saying. He's saying you want to be somebody who understands you don't bear fruit overnight and you want to be somebody who takes time and wisdom to sharpen your acts. Listen, um, patience and foolishness never hold hands in the same street. Right? I mean, so many of us, and I talk about this all the time, especially in your growing in sanctification, you look at pastors, you look at preachers, so many of us are just internet discipled, so you see a guy and you think he woke up one morning and he just became that. You don't see the 20 years of ongoing putting sin to death, wrestling with the Holy Spirit, asking God for clarity, asking God to lead, asking God to guide. You think he just woke up magically one morning and fights sin like he does, knows the word like he does, and I'm saying that's years of growing in grace. Years of sharpening his axe. So it's the pursuit, it's the trajectory, it's not the destination. It's living in repentance, right? It's not just believing that one morning we'll wake up and magically be who God wanted us to be. Right, because, and he's gonna get into this, justification is all God's doing and sanctification is God and you, absolutely. There is this dual working of our effort with the Holy Spirit's power as we grow in grace and grow in godliness. But the fool says, I always want to take the shortcut. I don't want to have to actually study my Bible. I don't want to have to actually gather with the people of God. I don't want to have to actually do all of these things. I just want to magically know it and live like it. I don't want to have to actually be in a season of suffering, be in a season of turmoil, be in a season of confusion. I want life to always be clear, always be understandable. He said the fool thinks that way. The wise person realizes he prepares. He walks in the season he's in and he keeps his ax sharp. So the question is, what has God laid before you to be faithful in today? I didn't ask about five years from now. <laughs> right, we all wanna go five years from now, 10 years from now. What has God asked you to be faithful in today and where are you headed? That's a great question that Solomon's really poking at in his wisdom here. And the plan isn't guys wishful thinking, right? This is activeness, relying and pursuing Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit to have a soul that is content with him and loves others well. This is the pursuit of this person, the wise person that he's, that he's getting at here. Otherwise, he says, you're gonna be just like a snake charmer who forgets to play his flute and gets everybody killed. Right? I mean, what good is a snake charmer if his job is to get the snake to obey, but he fuddles around with stuff, takes his time, doesn't really pay attention to where he's going, what God has asked of him, and then before he knows it, the snake comes, comes out of the basket or the box and bites him and kills him. What, what's the point of a snake charmer if he's not charming the snake? So here's the question. What good is it to be a godly man? What good is it to be a godly woman? What good is it to be a godly husband or wife? What go good, good is it to be a godly Christian who raises godly kids, what, is it, what good is it to want an active faith and to want to know Jesus if you don't do anything to head in that direction? <laughs> what good is it? What's the point? What's the point of taking no active steps? Um, maybe you have doubts, right? So instead of just watching every YouTube channel you can get on that shows the apparent silliness of Christian doctrine and belief, you actually have intellectual honesty to do the same to actually see if the Christian faith is true and reliable. You don't take any steps. And you're tired and you're weary by that. Listen, Solomon, nor we ever believe in the power of self, that the willpower will ultimately get us to where we need to be. Just believe in yourself, just try harder, right? Just muster up courage, muster up faith. 
Uh, Solomon doesn't believe that. We don't believe that. We believe in grace and the empowerment of the Spirit, but sanctification is a process of God in us. So listen, nobody gets holy by sitting in their lazy boy, right? Like nobody gets holy with their Bible on the shelf. Nobody gets holy just sitting at home refusing to gather with the people of God. Nobody gets holy by just thinking that magically as they think about it and ponder it and wish about it, they'll change and turn into somebody different. But some of us are so stuck there and can't seem to get out of there. And maybe some of it's bad doctrine. We believe that God asks us just to be justified. And we actually have a wrong belief of his free grace and thinking that we literally don't have to do anything in our life in any way that pertains to holiness. Yes, you cannot stand rightly before God other than the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And you must then get up as a new created creation in Christ and walk according to the spirit that's in you. So here's what I want to tell you. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, if he's your sole refuge, if he is the, the one person that bought you to God, listen, you absolutely can walk a holy life. You absolutely can enjoy more of God than you do. You absolutely can put to death the sin that indwells in you that you fight every day. I'm sick of hearing Christians say, I just can't do it. I don't know how. I feel like it's a worthless effort. No, usually when you talk honestly, you learn they don't actually take any effort. They don't take any steps. They don't pursue Jesus at all. And they're waiting for God to just do something when he said, read my word. I've laid out the parameters for you. I've laid out the kindling for you. Why don't you walk in those things? Get a godly counselor in your life. Get with a brother or sister who loves Jesus more than you. And is farther down the road than you. Get with someone older and wiser than you. Get with someone who knows the Bible better than you and learn from them in humility, be taught, and then do something with what you've been taught. I say sanctification is normally inextricably connected to practicing what you already know. Right, but we all want something new all the time. We want a new theology, a new doctrine, a new creative thought. Hey, pastor, preacher, give me something that'll just wow me when God's going, you just need to practice just one thing that I've already told you for seven years. And we say, oh no, I've already heard that. Give me something new. God's going, well, I've got an infinite list of things I could give you that are new, but you don't have time for them. You can't even do one. Let's get to the one. Let's get to just holding your wife's hand and praying with her for one minute a day. Let's get to opening the word for five, ten minutes. Let's get to just begging God on your drive to work for the amount of time that he's given you, pleading with him to reveal his nature and name. Making maybe one phone call for the first time in your life to somebody who you know you should get together with to grow in grace. I don't know what it is for you, but what has God laid before you to be faithful in? I've said a lot. I continue to grow in my pastoral counseling, um, not by willpower, not because I'm even a good counselor, but by learning from all the times I gave such bad counsel, what not to do, and then asking God for the help with his mind and his words to do it better next time. So as we pursue Jesus, we learn in those moments and those help redirect us to continue to grow in grace. This is why he continues this, this theme of taking steps, being active, watching our life. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. It's profound. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? A wise person, Solomon says, watches his mouth. And he says, basically, the fool is consumed with his own lips. Um, Let me ask you a question. Who is the most influential person in your life? Who you spend the most time listening to, speaking with, and taking counsel from? Think about that person. Now, I'm going to bet most of you gave the wrong answer. (laughs) It's you. You are. You're the most influential person in your life. You give yourself the most counsel, you spend the most time with yourself, and you speak the most to yourself. Right? You are the most influential person in your life. Now, if we know this, right, here's what the Bible say. The scriptures will warn against our hearts being desperately wicked and deceitful, right? The reason it does that is because it knows your primary truth teacher in your own flesh is your own heart, right? Culture says, man, just follow your heart. That's the dumbest wisdom you could ever be given, right? No, follow Jesus, right? Okay, your heart's going to lead you into destruction. Your heart's going to lead you into uh, tumultuous affairs. Your heart's going to lead you into places that you never thought you could go. Your heart's gonna lead you into darkness left by itself without a new heart that God regenerates by the power of his son that says now you can walk rightly, clearly have a heart that actually is bent towards God and loves the things of God and understands the loves of God. And so we need to have a literal new heart to walk rightly. Listen, if you don't have a new heart, you're constantly, you don't wanna follow your heart. You're gonna want 10 spouses, You're going to believe the American dream is the way to true fullness of life. You're going to believe that money is the answer. You're going to believe that cheating gets its way faster. You're going to believe that lack of courage and not speaking up would be safer and better. The gospel doesn't really have power. If you follow your heart and you follow your own mind... You're not renewed by the scriptures, not renewed by God's preaching, not renewed by what he says and thinks and feels, then we will be led into a circus, right? Praise God he's given us, right? Himself and his word and his son. So it's what do we follow? Because we're the most influential person that exists. This is why a doctor, like, Think about this. The doctor would have to be a moron to say, you know, I think I'm going to perform surgery on myself because I know myself the best, right? No, no. you'd say, no, get somebody outside of you, right, to help perform surgery on you. That, that's how we walk as Christians. We get other counselors to spot things we can't see to help us walk in grace. We don't just do surgery on ourselves. We want godly counsel, not general counsel. Now, here is his point. Um, If you want to sin, you can find someone to endorse that. If you want to be lazy, you can find somebody to endorse your laziness. If you want to just be somebody who does not lead and love his family, who does not you know, teach his kids, who does not work well for the glory of God in his job, who wants to blame his spouse, his children, the economy, his job, his neighborhood for everything that happens in his life, you can find somebody to help you do that. He's saying, those aren't the people you should get. You want the people who are wise, the people who love God. This is why he says, when you talk to foolish people, they defend themselves and their answers are madness, right? 
That's what he says here. Um, I've, I've actually heard people say, well, I mean, I read that adultery can save your marriage. It's madness. I read that pornography of Fifty Shades of Grey can grow my intimacy in my marriage union. That's madness. Yet they defend themselves and say, yeah, but it, it told me this would happen. You're being led by your heart. You're not being led by the God of the universe who made your heart and fashioned your heart and keeps your heart beating. Where do we glean and gain our wisdom? Solomon says, the fool refuses to begin with God, to begin with wisdom. This is why Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so if you are at a starting place where there is no God, you will stand before and give an account. There is no God who can actually give you the life that is the fullness of life that you need. If he has not wired you, if we don't come from him and are not headed to him, then this is a ever-decreasing slide into madness and evil what he's revealing. If you remove the possibility that your words just become multiplied, those who do not love the God of the scriptures, their way of speaking reveals their destiny. Now there's something really, I think, bigger going on underneath this whole idea of words and watching our mouth and yes, we need to be careful as to who instructs us and who guides us and who counsels us, but there's actually a way in which we speak, the things we adore, the things we praise that actually reveal our eternal destiny. Like it actually can reveal aspects of your conversion. And you see this in Matthew chapter 12. You see this with Jesus, right? He's talking to the religious leaders who seem to have it all good by the ways of their mouth. They seem to say things that are right. They seem to know the law and know Christian doctrine. They seem to know what Jesus has said. And look at what he says to them in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He calls them, listen, brood of vipers. You ever called a brood of vipers by Jesus? That, that isn't good. Okay, so he, he is coming at them. He is condemning them. This isn't a happy, hey, you guys are kind of cute, doing something nice. No, he goes, you brood of vipers. And he's talking about the way that their mouths are saying things. Look at this. He says, how can you who are evil say anything good? One of the ways that you will know that you become a Christian is that literally the things from your mouth change. I'm not talking about just not cussing. I'm talking about you start adoring God with your lips. You start singing praises to the one who rescued and ransomed you. You start using your mouth to worship him and give glory to him and share the truth of the gospel about him. The things that come out of your lips change. Now, this is not the idea of simply, hey, get a hold of your tongue, God lets you into heaven. This, it's never works-based. It's never meriting something. And Jesus makes it clear here. He wants to make sure you know, hey, it's not just you kind of bridling your tongue that's going to save you in the end. I'm just saying it's indicative of maybe what's deeper, what you need changed, which is why he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, listen. He goes, this is a heart issue, not just a mouth issue. Your mouth is responding. It's foolish in its speech because your heart hasn't been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. He says, the, um, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says the problem isn't your tongue. It's the tongue that follows your heart. For out of your heart, the mouth just speaks. For what you love, you praise. For what you're consumed with, you adore. For what you want, you talk about. For what you're all about, you speak of. 
Jesus is saying the heart that is transformed by the wisdom and work of God in Christ will be revealed in the way that the mouth is used and equally the way that it is not. The one that remains unchanged in its foolishness, right? He says that'll be revealed. Powerful, right? What do we let guide us and direct us? Is it God's word? Is it God's truth? Is it other godly men and women? Is it the saints that he has bought with the precious blood of his son? This is why he says, verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he doesn't even know the way to the city. (laughs) Solomon's going, this is where it leads. The fool refuses to seek wisdom from God, refuses to seek wisdom from the face of God in Jesus Christ, refuses to seek wisdom in the scriptures, his wisdom, his written revelation. He refuses to find wisdom from others. No plan to fight sin, no plan to grow in his marriage, no plan to teach his kids, no plan to use his singleness for the glory of God. No, No plan, not headed anywhere. He goes, this person just says, I'll figure it out. They tend to be the most exhausted people on the planet because they're walking, as he continues to say, on the proverbial tread of life going nowhere. They just walk in circles and they're lost in the elevator. And they know no way out. And they're not getting anywhere. And Solomon repeatedly speaks to this. He says you're chasing the wind, right? If it's not wisdom from God over the sun and you're chasing your own wisdom from your own heart that's already fallen and broken, that doesn't even know right from wrong, you weren't born in a place of neutrality that picks foolishness or wisdom. You were born with a bent by nature and choice in your folly already to not choose the God who is all wise and all powerful, right? So if we know that from birth, he goes, you're not magically gonna know how to escape the elevator that you're wandering around in and you're tired and you're weary and your toil is exhausting and you believing that you can make it right. You need something else outside of you. He says the wise person in the end knows where he is going, and that person does not get overwhelmed by life. Listen, there are times where work is hard and difficult, and I mean your job, right? There are times where the home life is hard and difficult. If you're like, not me, uh, I'm coming to your house. I can't wait, let's filet and crab cake, man. Cook me up a meal, let's sit down, and I wanna just be a part of that. Some of you, um, raising children is hard and difficult. Whether they are three months old, or 13, or 25, or 40. There are days that are hard and difficult. But listen, he's saying, you need to know the end. You know the point of your toil, right? Um, Us following wisdom isn't simply pragmatic in that we get results and then we feel like we're good. So I'm gonna follow the commands of God, follow the rules of God, follow the wisdom of God, yet it doesn't seem like anything's changing and so it must not be right. We don't believe that. We don't walk like that because we know ultimately God's justice in the end stands. Ultimately, what God says will win out for us in the end. Ultimately, we're gonna be at a wedding feast with all of God's saints and with God himself. Ultimately, we will be at a place that is perfect with God where I say we will work and never toil. We will eat and never be hungry. We'll, all of perfection will reside. We will enjoy the fullest affair. 
Like if I know that the pressing through in my married life and in our, my children and in the things that God has asked me and in my job is not just to terminate in tomorrow, it's not just terminating in next week, it's actually accruing for me spiritual implementation, spiritual profit for when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and then I get eternity and bliss in the new Jerusalem. You've got to put your mind there. Like now all of a sudden, the end makes the toil worth it. You now know where you're going. You know how you're going to get there. And you know the day doesn't stop at tomorrow. You know the things you're doing are not just to accomplish some sort of fruit in your life that you want to see in a week. You have the long view in mind. You play the long game. That's why I say I constantly want to unteach you and reteach you. Like heaven, glory is not us with wings and harps for eternity. That is awful. Right? We are, in, are enjoying physical realities that we enjoy here yet without sin, with darkness fully pushed back, with God himself dwelling with us. I mean, actually put your head there for a minute. Like actually put your head in glory, in eternity. Now think about the things you're walking in today. Think about your job. Think about the home life. Think about your marriage. Think about a striving to the end. You know the city that you're going. You're not toiled by wearisome tasks that are going nowhere where you're lost. You absolutely know your final destination and you know every bit of following God's wisdom and what he's asked of you is absolutely, totally worth it because of where you will ultimately be. Do you believe that? Or are you nearsighted? Peter will say is one of the root causes of every sin. You're nearsighted. You only see what is today. You only see what your hand has been dealt this hour. That takes Holy Spirit-fueled grace. <laughs> but we know what's coming, right? And we've talked about this. We don't need to repeat this. So we know the end. It'll help us in our difficult days. That's what Solomon's saying. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. But happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The people that don't see God, that don't have a plan, that don't assess their life honestly in light of eternity, they have a tendency to start drinking before the sun goes down because they'd actually rather stand still than move forward. He goes, that's a foolish way to live. Well, life is meaningless. There's really no purpose, no ultimate end to this thing. So I might as well drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, Paul says, if we are not of Christ, if this message isn't true. They would rather sit in the meaninglessness of life than pursue the life in God. That's the fundamental fool, right? I know the meaning of life. I know how to find purpose outside of him. So even though in my mind I believe I came from nowhere and I'm headed to nowhere, somehow I think I can find meaning here. He's saying that is madness, which is why he says there is a time and way to enjoy God's gifts. And we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. We spent at length talking about God's gifts. Now he actually, he definitely gives us gifts for his glory and our enjoyment that when they're used rightly, they're used to worship his name and give us fullness of life. So he says the fool doesn't use God's gifts rightly. He uses them to stand still, not move forward. But the child of God enjoys these gifts 
and is aware of what God has asked of him in giving him those gifts. Listen, the wise person doesn't enjoy life for no reason. Like, like the wise person doesn't just sip his wine, enjoy his food because he has nothing else to do, and it's an excuse for him to be lazy. He enjoys all of that because actually he knows all of those things point to something greater than himself and give him richer enjoyment of those things as he sees the God who gave them to him. He's seeing that these gifts are all to drive you to the giver of those gifts. Right? We, we, we say all the time idolatry at its fundamental root is us taking every good gift that God gives us and just abusing it and using it for our own pleasure and joy instead of his glory and good. That was Genesis 3 the reason the fall of man entered human history. Because Solomon says, here's what happens when you become that type of person. Verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. <laughs> Eventually, the person who has no direction, no pursuit of God, does not glean wisdom from God or from his spirit or from his people, who thinks he knows his own way. Eventually, he says, you're like a person who just tolerates dysfunction. You tolerate sin. You're the person who, who in your house, your door's crooked, and you're like, yeah, it's crooked, I'll change it next week. Next week, week goes by, and you're like, yeah, it's still crooked, I'll just change it the following week. Door's still crooked, I'll just change it the following week. You're the person who, you got a leak in your house? I'll just change a leak in a week. And what happens, right? A little leak can start running through the walls creating mold, water damage, catastrophic damage. It started out as one little leak that you could have fixed, you could have taken ownership of. And he says, the, the fool just says, oh, I'll just leave it be. Even though there's dysfunction around me, even though there's sin all around my life, secret sin, hidden sin, things that I do not want to admit and confess, I'll just let it be, thinking somehow I might change later. Now, this is definitely scary because... There are things in our life we just tolerate and put up with that make no sense. No sense. And I always say when I do preparing for marriage counseling, um, habits now are habits later, right? If you've walked with my wife and I, you know that. I say it all the time. Don't think when you get married, oh, all of a sudden we're going to be really in love and everything's going to work out great. We're going to have all these things that you've talked about right in line. We just got to get married first. That's the magic potion. Fairy falls down with pixie dust and we are good to go. No, that's just crazy talk. That's madness. You establish rhythms now that roll into your marriage later. And even as you're married, you establish habits now that roll into your marriage later. This can be applied to any area of life. Habits in how you work at your office. Habits in how you train and teach your children. Habits in how you operate with your neighbors out of love for the gospel and the good of others. This can be any area of life that we do this. But some of us, this is why this is scary. Your roof sinks in and your house leaks. And proverbially, it's your salvation. Or it's your walk with Jesus. Right? especially the youth. And I love that there are so many young people. When I say young, I mean like 35 and down. I don't mean like 18 and down, okay? I'm in the camp. I know I'm part of that category. Us, youth, especially need to be so keenly aware of the little leaks in our life that we just avoid and ignore conveniently that say the house really won't fall down. The roof won't really sink in. I'll be okay. 
What is that for you? I'll take Jesus seriously next year, right? I'll get serious about pursuing him and putting sin to death. I'll take seriously the word of God. I'll take seriously pursuing wisdom and not folly. I'll take all that seriously in like six months. I've got this thing right before me that I want to do or I'm in a job where I could do this kind of little you know, side deal and it's not ethical and it's not really God honoring, but I could do it. Then once I get through it, then I'll be good to go. Or I got this girl that I'm flirting with at work and it's not really a big deal. I kind of enjoy it, but I'll put a cap on it when it gets too serious so it doesn't really hinder my home life or my spouse or the person I'm dating. I mean, we are crazy in the illusion that we live in in our own heads. And that is why the scriptures say, your mind is depraved, your heart is wicked. Be so careful that you follow those things and are not renewed by the mind and heart of the Spirit of God. <laughs> so what are you possibly tolerating right now? Living in foolishness, buying the lie that somehow, here's what's nuts, the Holy Spirit is at your bidding. I mean, this is what we do. We go, well, well, I can tell the Holy Spirit when to awaken my heart, to want him, to want to love him, to walk with him, and I can tell him when to kind of step down. Especially when we were in high school ministry and did college work, every time I go to a place and, and teach and preach, I would talk to students all the time, like, yeah, but I just want to enjoy the scene. I want to kind of enjoy my life right now. And then, hey, when I get 30 or 40 and I find the right marriage partner and then I have my kids and my, you know, then I'll kind of pursue the, the Lord and get involved in church and kind of serve a little bit and do this and that. I'm going, wait, whoa, wait a second. It is 2008 on Friday night at 10 p.m. and we're sitting down outside on a balcony having a conversation about what God could do to you if you perish tomorrow tomorrow with his wrath and fury and hell and you want to roll the dice and say I might live 20 more years the Holy Spirit is when I say he will open my heart I command him when to work when to illuminate when to operate that is madness that is evil we need to turn from that foolishness and walk in wisdom today because you never know the moment you might be taken I mean, the games we play with ourselves are crazy and we believe that somehow we literally hold the Holy Spirit at our bidding and say, no, no, no. In five years, come back, knock on my door and see if I'm interested. And he's saying, you might not ever have that day again. That's the reality. Friends, if I could say anything to you, it would be, when God awakens your heart, run through the door. I mean, if you have a moment, a moment of God granting illumination, giving you an inkling of desire and want, run through the door to Christ. I mean, run to salvation. I mean, Solomon's getting at the seriousness of the ways we peddle with God and consider time and time again in moments which path we'll walk on. For some of us, we could leave today walking the path of wisdom and not folly and be saved from inexplicable despair. What will you choose? Are you somebody who, though the sloth and the roof sinks in and the house leaks, you go, eh, it's okay. Not a big deal. It's small. It won't grow. It won't get bad. Deal with it now. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things. And he says this in verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. I love this. Everybody gets excited. See, Jesus wants me rich. No, it's not what he's saying. 
It's not what he's saying. Read the whole scripture. And you actually got to read this backwards to understand it. It's not a sin to be poor. It's not a sin to be rich. We taught on this extensively in Luke. It is a sin to be lazy. It is a sin not to take. He's speaking of the versatility of money. Now, you can use your money as God's steward to steward it in good ways. So the more money you're given, yes, you can steward it with much more opportunity. One's not better than somebody else, but God has given it to us to be a good gift of his, not to be worshipped, not to be loved and adored, not to be a consuming fire in our life, but to be used as advancing the kingdom of Christ. So money affords us opportunity to steward God's resources. Jesus says in Luke 16, right, we use our worldly wealth for his glory and not our own purposes. Um, So do you live within your means? I'm not asking for numbers and judgments and do you just genuinely, generally live within your means? I'm asking this because it's a Bergen County plague and a New York City surrounding area plague. We're gonna buy the house we can't afford, drive the cars we can't afford, to give our kids the life we can't afford, so we all live in despair, isolated, and divided until ultimately our whole family disintegrates. Did you know that Glenrock, right, Pleasantville of Bergen County, if you live there, just funny joke, I love you, uh, just rated one of the highest suicides for high school teens. Glenrock, right? Why? Because majority of those families, mom and dad, work tiresome jobs to late in the evening to live in the house they cannot afford, to drive the cars they want to drive and can't afford, to hire the people, to watch their children, to escape the primary desire to care for their children, to where the children hardly see them, to where the heart of the child gets divided from the parents, becomes isolated, defeated, desperate, in despair, to where ultimately they get to a place where they want to just take their own life because they feel so alone in one of the most affluent towns in the state. Solomon's warning us as to how we think and how we make decisions and how we manage our life and steward our resources and look at what we have. So the wise man knows where he's going, understands how to use God's gifts, and God's gifts are to be richly enjoyed. So he gives bread and wine, right? The enjoyment of food, not for the sin of gluttony. But we enjoy food. We've talked about this. The, the enjoyment of fidelity within the framework of marriage and biblical sexuality, not immorality. The enjoyment of laying up of our resources rather than just amassing things on earth. The Christian of all people should have the highest joy in seeing sunsets and enjoying the companionship of friends. But the fool misses it completely, he says. He misses the feast with God. The fool is totally unaware of that because the fool simply indulges in this life alone because they do not believe in the life to come and they say, man, we're gonna eat, drink, and party till we die and pursue our own wants and desires all the while becoming numb to the realities of life, missing the feast totally that they could have today. That's wisdom and folly. And he ends with verse 20. So even in your thoughts, seems like a weird transition. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. He's circling back to verse 14 again. 
Watch your mouth. It consumes the fool. Watch what you say. It's a verification. It's a, an, a statement about possibly your destiny. The fool doesn't watch his mouth. Don't revile a king, he says, even in your thoughts, because if you think about it, you'll probably say it. Most of us are going, yeah, man, I'm good, like not saying something to someone's face, right? But how are you in your bedroom with the dartboard of their face on your wall, right? I mean, how, how are you there? He's saying both are wicked and evil. Be careful about even saying that because a bird might hear it and might take it. That bird might be Twitter, right? <laughs> might take that, post it, say it, and then you're stuck, right? Isn't it crazy all the stuff that we totally want people to hear from us they never get to hear and all the stuff we want people to never hear always gets to them? You walk in on a conversation at work where everybody's bad-mouthing somebody and you're, you're in some way, shape, or form, you're like, oh yeah, I agree with that. And the only thing they hear is that you agreed with them? They know nothing about what they said. Sin has a way of finding us out, right? I think it's God's sense of humor and good discipline to us. We need to be careful how we use our mouths. Isn't it amazing, right? You, you stub your foot, you walk around the house, and in a moment of weakness, you say something you shouldn't, and your kid's like, I heard you, right? Oh, you heard that? Right? And we tell our kids all the time, right? What do we just tell our kids? Hey, careful what you do. A little birdie might see that. I hear that. Who we are in private is who we are in public. Saying wisdom is you're the same person in public as you are in private. Pastor Mike McKinney got it this last week. Right? It's about who you are, not just what you do. It's about your godly character. It's about your inner self. Being made in the likeness and image of Jesus. You know, what we say privately usually has a way of haunting us. Haunting us. Who are you most likely to rant, rage, and vent about? That question reveals a lot about you spiritually. It really does. And the expectations you lay on people that God might not ask you to lay on them. Who are those people that in your bedroom, it's not out in public, your aggression and your anger is so fierce? And you feel free to say whatever you want, however you feel it. Solomon says it reveals a lot more than we might like to admit. Uh, we live a day and age, right, particularly on social media. <laughs> we, we scream out our rage behind a safe computer screen uh, instead of following the biblical and brilliant idea of talking to the human being themselves. Um, and we feel safe, so we can just do it. We can just lambaste anybody and everyone. And he's saying there might be a wiser more beneficial way. And this isn't a sermon on social media. But listen, um, Solomon is saying the wise person understands that he lives in a sinful, broken world of which he is a part of. So it's not they're all sinful and broken, it's I'm a part of the sinful, broken world. And then he gets to, so then this demonstrates how we view and see things even in our private life. The wise person lays in bed at night and in those moments where you feel like venting and raging about someone, says to themselves, God, help me in this moment. God, help me to think biblically and rightly about my heart right now. Is it possible that my heart is off, my heart is crooked, my heart is bent, my heart is hostile, my heart is depraved? I need to empathize. Remind me that I do not battle flesh and blood. Paul said that I don't battle people, I battle spiritual forces. Is he trying to rise up in me emotions that are not right, godly, and helpful? 
There's other things at work. Pray for your heart. Pray for their heart. Jesus, where am I seeing this wrong? Where am I laying expectations of someone that you haven't asked me to lay? That person, Solomon says, is wise because they live over the sun. They're not consumed with just here. They live in a place where God's glory dwells and his peace dwells and his mind is present. Is that how you operate? And if you don't, man, let's just take steps. Don't expect to wake up tomorrow thinking that way through every circumstance and situation. In your brokenness, you won't. But how do we pursue that daily? Listen, here's ultimately where Solomon wants us to get. Being a fool in this life now means facing the next life totally unprepared. It's not just you not facing today prepared, it's you facing eternity unprepared. And that's the continued theme as he's been rolling out wisdom and folly, as he's been showing us the differences in wisdom and folly. So if we don't deal, friends, with our greatest folly now, we won't have the chance to deal with our folly later. Right, once we perish from this life, Hebrews says, then comes judgment. Death is appointed for man to die once. So we don't just deal with the the wisdom and folly of day-to-day growing as God's people. If we are not his, we deal with the folly, the ultimate foolishness of belittling God's name, of not enjoying him, of not wanting him, of saying, I do not want you. I believe my life is better without you. I do not want you, the God who lives over the sun. I don't need the Christ who came under the sun to die on my behalf and rescue me and ransom me. I can live my life how I want to live my life. And even if it's foolish, I will somehow make myself believe that it will be right and it will be fruitful and it will end well for me. He says, foolishness says... There is no God. I will not stand before him. My sin is not serious. Even though my roof sinks in, even though I refuse godly counsel, I have no preparation in my life to head nowhere. Even though I choose to disbelieve, I come from nowhere and are headed to nowhere. He says, you will one day realize the greatest foolish act of the universe, which is that. That the God who made you, loves you, can sustain you, and will ultimately assess you. That is the greatest act of foolishness in the human race. You will miss the feast completely, verse 19. I don't want anyone to miss the feast. Now, statistically, I've seen this in my own life in ministry. Most people who decide to pursue wisdom and put away folly do so when they're young. Just statistically. And in my life in ministry, most people in their youth, again, 35 and younger, tend to pursue life. But here's what I've also seen. Those who choose to walk in foolishness, compound it, embrace it, further it, energize it, tend to find themselves in a life of foolishness who never turn and never find a Christ and often die as fools. So the implication would say, those of us who are young, yes, those of us who are older, but those of us who are young, you can make plans, you can process these things, you can think about this, but listen, do not let a day waste. You should walk in the wisdom of Christ now. You can repent of foolishness today. I mean, this is ultimately what conversion is. It's repenting of foolishness. That's what salvation is. I was living my life apart from you. I didn't want you. I didn't think I needed you. And I tried it and I kept trying it. And I lived in the cul-de-sac of insanity believing that all these things that have never worked might somehow work and they continue not to work until God breaks you, brings you a place of humility down from your pride. And he says, do you want me now? 
and he's still available in his patience and mercy. The fact that he doesn't walk away from us when we continue to belittle his name, when we continue to rebel against him, he continues to stand firm in his call and say, I will save all and any who would turn to my wise name. What a gracious king we serve. What could be more foolish in some of our minds this morning than the message of that gospel itself? For some of us, that is totally foolish. That baby Jesus, born of a virgin, from God, God incarnate, God in human flesh, fullness of God dwelling him bodily, lived a life without sin, perfectly obedient to the Father's will, upheld every aspect, dot, tittle of the law that God righteously required, and then went to a cross, experienced the scorning and shame that we deserved in our sin, took the full weight and wrath of God towards us in our sin, became our sin for us, gives us his righteous life, and says you stand before God no longer hostile and condemned and alienated, but reconciled to his name, all because of what I did. Colossians 1, the Father qualifies you. You have no qualification in this at all. You can't boast in any of this. I'm gonna do it finally and fully. He comes in, and then we stand before God right Righteous, blameless, adopted, cleansed, pure. The gavel gets dropped. We need our debt paid in full. We need a champion to stand in our place. And Jesus shows up and said, I did it for him. I did it for her. He's mine. She's mine. Welcome to the kingdom. For some of us, that is total foolishness. And you know what I love? The Bible always says what you will say. It's 1 Corinthians 1. It's foolishness. That whole message is folly. That's ridiculous. Let me just read it and we'll close. Maybe ask God to work. Verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's what I just explained, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's going, bring out the philosophers. This is Solomon. Bring out the teachers. Bring out the skeptics. Bring them all out. Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who would believe. It pleased God through the foolishness of this imperfect sermon in Ecclesiastes 10 to possibly save all and any who would come to Jesus Christ for salvation. <laughs> not because I'm passionate, not because I have good gifts or good hermeneutics or because I'm clever in study, not because you had a peculiar desire for God. He did it all in his manifold wisdom. He dared to use a mere mortal to speak words and somehow maybe life would be given to a dead heart, a dead mind that's on a foolish road, not wanting wisdom at all, to literally turn them in 180 round brought from death to life. That is absolutely amazing solely to declare the manifold wisdom of God, that he would use us as ambassadors of his message in our workplaces, neighborhoods, homes, that we with our cute little packaged apologetics, he doesn't need them, just somebody who says in their foolishness admitting, I don't know everything, I could never uncover the infinite riches of God or his mercy, that God still might 
dare to use mere mortals who are bent to not want him or desire him, still struggling on the path of sanctification held by his spirit, that he would still say, why? That he would save people. Why? So that his manifold wisdom would be put on display and would shine even brighter so the world goes, that God is awesome. He is wise. I mean, he takes the foolish things and he makes dead people walk. He takes a guy not finished with seminary to preach sermons. He takes people that have hardly passed school to go out and watch through the sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even one be raised to life. How holy must he be How wise must he be? Because he wants to untangle and rid you of every possible place you can boast. He wants you to see that ultimately you have no wisdom in yourself. You have none. And he has it all. And he grants it to us through himself if we desire to receive it. Might some of us receive that this morning? The wisdom of God that is Christ who saves us from our sin. God, would you help us to know how to walk today? Would you maybe help some of us who maybe believe we were born in a neutral position to realize we were not born in a a place of neutrality at all, but a place by nature and choice that chooses folly. For you say in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. You say in Romans 1, we've all desired in our rebellion to suppress the truth. God, you can override all of that by the power of your sovereign grace to awaken us to newness of life. Would you awaken some this morning? Would you give them a desire for you to repent and believe in Christ, to turn from their sin of foolishness that says, I do not need God. I do not need his son. God, for those of us who are yours, would you help us to walk in good wisdom for fullness of life now. Protect us from lies of the enemy. Protect us from blindness. Protect us from deceit. Protect us from doubt. Protect us from despair. Would you encourage us in the exact ways, spaces, and places we need it this morning? God, you say the person who cries out from their heart, you promise to give them yourself. He said, he who comes to me, I will not cast out. The one who comes humbly, honestly, admittedly, foolish. Saying, God, my wisdom in of itself is nothing apart from you. God, would you demonstrate your manifold wisdom through continuing to save sinners and rescue those who are far from you? God, would you give us the courage and the conviction to live lives this week as you've asked us to live them fully present in today. Give us a long view. We thank you that we have your broken body and shed blood to remember that this wisdom was granted to us solely through that, the work of your precious son. Help us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.